Hi, I'm Angie Brown and you are listening to the Being Luminary podcast. The podcast where I sit down with everyday but by no means ordinary thought leaders to talk about being luminary in life and in work. Darren, thank you for very much for chatting to me today. Uh, it's really nice to see you again. And I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners and then we'll get started. Okay. Um, I'm Darren Chetty. I teach and I write. Uh, I taught in primary schools for getting on for 25 years. I, I say over 20 years. Um, I've been teaching in university at UCL for about eight years in different roles, uh, part-time, uh, whilst I'm also completing my doctorate research. And I've also written sort of for academic audiences for children and young people and for adults in sort of trade books as well. Mm, thanks, Darren. And so you're based in London. Did you grow up in London? Are you a Londoner? No. Well, I, I mean, I'd say I'm a Londoner. In fact, I, I say I'm a Welsh, Indian, South African, Dutch Londoner. <laughs> okay. Um, and it usually does get a laugh, and I'm 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 happy with that. But I mean, I think it it, it certainly makes sense to me. Um, I was born in Swansea, and have a have a strong sense of of being Welsh and sort of a fondness for that time. And we moved then to England, uh, first to Devon, Cambridgeshire. Uh, then I went to university, and since then, apart from a year in Poland where I was teaching at a university, I've been in London since then. Mm -hmm. So, how old were you when you left Swansea? Uh, just before I turned ten, that was. Okay, so you went to primary school in in Wales. I did, yeah, 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 and I've I've written about this. So, there's a book that I co-edited this year called uh, Welsh Brackets Plural. Uh, which tried to sort of look at, at, at Welshness as distinct, but also inclusive. And that sort of the, the, the challenge there in trying to, you know, forge a national identity without making the sort of boundaries geographical, but also sort of symbolic boundaries so, so stringent that they, they just serve to exclude. Um, and that was written with, yeah, uh, well, edited with three other writers uh, we had very varied backgrounds which I think really added to the project and and the contributors were very varied and it's done pretty well in in Wales and there's sort of talks about trying you know doing work with Welsh teachers on that book as well mm, yeah I saw that you had a connection with Wales I hadn't um, read that you that you grew up there and I, I saw you were writing in the Guardian about Welshness and Welsh identity um, and it interests me and then also interests me that you that you mentioned Devon, because I, I also grew up in Devon, um, the kind of experience of of brownness and being a brown person in some of those often very white spaces. There are many very white spaces in I mean, Devon to me feels like a very white space. What, what was your experience? What are your memories of that as a child? Um it wasn't a, it wasn't a great time i mean it wasn't a great time partly for, for you know things going on with my family but but also yeah devon it was very white i had some friends and there were some nice people but it it was a bit of a i, I didn't have the same sense of of connection that i'd had growing up in, in swansea uh we we're only there for a fairly short period of time um 
but it yeah it was it's not a place i would choose to live although i did go back to university in exeter um so but but university and, and campus university particularly was very different from from living in a community so whilst whilst university had its own issues they weren't necessarily related to to the locality i'd say so if if i were to ask you about your origin story other than location and the geography that you've just shared what would you say of your origin story and i'm really interested in how diversity or equity or inclusion or the absence of features in in that origin story it's a massive question but i wonder if you can go a piece of the way with us yeah origin story makes me sound like a superhero um that's that's quite a funny term but um i mean when i when i think of it now and and i sometimes sort of talk about this you know when i'm working in schools in terms of i guess positionality term people tend to talk about how you know if we're going to talk about matters to do with racialization and racism then we're going to be positioned to the subject matter in, in particular ways and you know when i'm reflecting it for myself well my father is indian south african so my great grandfather left india to go to south africa as a trader my great grandmother left india to go to south africa as an indentured laborer so the the sort of they're the very different sort of classed backgrounds of the two of them and and i've got family who are still trying to piece together exactly how they did meet and end up together um history's kind of interest me um and i guess my dad's generation you know there were members of the family who were very much involved with the the struggle against apartheid in in south africa uh my father's cousin uh was the attorney for steve biko's wife in the inquest into his his murder by the police there and eventually had to leave south africa for his own safety and, and only returned uh when democracy uh was achieved in south africa uh but equally i had other family who you know kept their heads down and did their work earned a living and you could say that whilst they were um clearly oppressed by the apartheid government they also had the benefit of being positioned as asiatic or asian or indian in a formally stratified community which meant that they had economic privileges that black africans didn't have so in you know it's not a simple story of well you know we we were brown in south africa and therefore we were oppressed because because the the you know there's more complexity to it and then i guess on my mother's side uh, my mother's dutch her father my grandfather was uh, in the dutch resistance during the second world war um was spent uh, some time in a concentration camp was traumatized and and in later years you know only in later years re- really started to unpack his experiences and sort of talk to me a little bit about that i think being the grandchild it was a little bit easier sometimes than talking to his own children and and of course that's something that you i i can take a certain amount of pride from but equally there there were members of the family who weren't in the resistance who again kept their heads down who may have to different degrees 
collaborated uh, with Nazi occupation, as many people in, in the Netherlands did in a way that, as far as I can make out, not being fluent in the language. You know, the Netherlands is still struggling to fully uh, fully face up to that, that you know, that the, the Nazis were prepared to see the Dutch as, as fellow Aryan brothers and, and Dutch people therefore had a choice, you know, uh, as, as to how they uh, responded to Nazism. So in that, I, I'd say that as as all people, I would guess, um, you know, I come from people who have fought against oppression. I've come from people who have benefited, been beneficiaries of, of oppression in some way. Um, and I'm kind of interested, I guess, in how that shows that these things aren't deterministic for many of us. Perhaps for some, they are more so. It's more straightforward. But that there is there is choice and there are important choices to be made. And, you know, I guess in, in my own life, I try and take seriously those choices that I, I might have. What would you say is on your mind then? What what are the pieces of the real world that you're interested in right now that you're working on? Well, I think the other thing is that, that I work a lot in collaboration. So so the Welsh book, you know, was with was three other writers, uh, Greg Muse, Hanan Issa, Yestin Tyne, uh, and then, you know, another uh, 15 writers. Uh, the next month, the, we have a special issue of Wasafiri magazine, which is international literature and i edited that with angelique golding and professor nicola rollock and it's lots of contributors and again it's it, to me it's it's very much like being a primary school teacher you're trying to edit people's work you're trying to push them to do a little bit more but also be sensitive to the fact that you know they might just say i've had enough now so i like you know editing in that way so that's i guess the welshness the international literature i'm working on a special issue with a couple of colleagues uh, for the Journal of Global Hip Hop Studies. So the work I've done in hip hop education, and I really like this the way this special issue is taking shape because it's really international. It's there's you know most of the continents are covered, uh, and it's it's far beyond sort of my experience of hip hop. But at the same time, I think as an editor, I've probably got some things to offer, so I'm not sort of completely out of my depth. And again, doing it in collaboration, I guess, helps me partly perhaps it's a confidence thing, but also just I, I think it's quite a thing to think that I have all the skills required to do this international thing on my own. I, you know, I working in teams, again, the, the financial incentives aren't there. And when I talk to, you know, my my agent, my literary agent, and I say, I've got this idea, I'm working with three other people, you know, I know they're thinking, well, this ain't going to make me any money. It's not going to make you much money. We're not set up to collaborate. Uh, you know, the, the market that doesn't really allow it. Even recently, I, I was invited to write a, a piece for a broadsheet paper. And I was like, well, I could work on this with someone else who's a real expert in this. And I think we'd both. And they said, yeah, but if there's two people in a byline, it doesn't get the clicks. And I'm like, well, that's, that's really ironic, isn't it? That it'd be a much stronger piece. Uh, we're so sort of conditioned to think of writing as this solitary thing where one person tells you how it is 
that collaboration is seen as uh, as less interesting. You talked about um, this piece of work that you're doing that is uh, relates to the, the work you did with Hip Hop Ed. And I wanted to ask you about that and also about, well, firstly, just for the listeners of this podcast, could you could you tell us what Hip Hop Ed was, is, continues to be? Yes, yeah, so it started as, as, a, as a movement and a hashtag on Twitter in, in the United States and particularly the work of Dr. Chris Emden, who was at... Uh, Teachers College, Columbia. Um, and then we sort of got in touch and said, look, we, we're doing similar things. I want to do similar things in the UK. I was already running a sort of primary school hip hop collective after school where they were making albums. And I wanted to to meet with other teachers, informal educators and, and hip hop artists and, and really talk through, you know, share work for critique and, and build collectively on ideas. And that's how it sort of grew. So it, it became something where we'd sort of meet on a Saturday, often like for the whole day, get some pizzas in, uh, hear from different people, have lots of discussion and debate. And, you know, from that, some people sort of got to know each other and collaborate outside of those meetings, which always felt great. It didn't feel like I had to have any ownership or involvement. Uh, and some people have gone on to to write. I mean, I think most successfully Jeffrey Boache, who was you know, who's, who was with at those meetings from the start and has now, you know, written multiple books and his, you know, his profile is rising and rightly so because he's not only a fantastic teacher but a, a, a really good uh, communicator. Why hip-hop, Ed, though, when you say we would meet and we would discuss, what, what would you discuss? What, what's the relevance of hip-hop to this space? Um, so the, there would be elements of, of looking at how hip-hop culture, uh, and there is, you know, people may well not know about there's a, there's a lot of scholarship around hip-hop and using it in educational spaces so hip-hop culture and education and, and what are the possible connections um uh, and in a way i think we sort of started around 2011 um it was a way of saying if you're in any way interested in hip-hop and education you're welcome i think it had the effect of sort of centering black people uh, in terms of who who got to speak, who was presenting, without it being positioned as a space only for Black people. So a way of trying to build a sort of space of solidarity. I've also been aware that often spaces that are intended like that end up being very far from that in reality. And I'm not saying I always got that right. There were times when people probably thought that I was, you know, uh, a not black, B, you know, too too middle class by virtue of working in the university or whatever, to be uh, the organizer. But equally, the organizer for me meant the person who booked the room and invited people and did that work to try and make it happen rather than someone who was uh, plastering their own image in places. So, yeah, I mean, we haven't met for quite a while, but a lot of people have informally kept in touch with that. And as I say, work has, has come out of that. So that's been, yeah, that's been really nice to see. Thank you for listening to the Being Luminary podcast. 
I would love to hear your thoughts on the podcast, so please do leave us a review. Each month, I will be picking one of our reviewers to get a free laser coaching session as a thank you. And remember, if you know a luminary or an everyday thought leader who would benefit from listening to this podcast or who would love to be featured on the cast, then please do share it with them. This episode was presented by me, Angie Brown. Original music is by Martin Ostwick. The series is edited by Big Tent Media and produced by Emily Crosby Media.